0: inform, advocate, and involve seniors in discussing important social issues. In short, these podcasts will help us. You, in creating an age-friendly city for Vancouver today. Tomorrow the world. You can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard. Hello, and welcome to Powered by Age. This is a senior-led podcast in its 51st episode. In Powered by Age, we talk about things that would make Vancouver and other cities be more of an age-friendly city. Today is April Fool's Day, but no fooling. We are talking about seniors want affordable, healthy, sustainable housing, and we have two special speakers that are going to give us their information on ways that they are helping to make that happen. It is also the first day of National Poetry Month, and our one of our resident poets, Neil Ryan, is going to share a poem with us. But right at the start, one of the things we do is just have uh, people that are online at the beginning uh, introduce themselves and give their 15 to 30 seconds of fame intro. So I will start with um,
1: Neil. Yes. um, Happy 1st of April. I wrote a book of poetry and short stories and it's called from the other side and the very first poem in the end there which i will read uh, after the introductions uh, is called the poet so uh that's my claim to fame is a, is a book called from the other side if i can get it yeah there it is there
0: it is okay uh jesse
2: uh, hi, I'm Jesse, uh, Jesse Wenzeloff. I'm the public affairs coordinator at CJSF uh, 90.1 FM, a campus community radio station in Burnaby at Simon Fraser University. Uh, and I am also a producer and general helper for the Powered by Age podcast.
3: Penny? Hi, I'm Penny Goldsmith, and uh, my particular area of um, interest and um Passion is around the digital divide and specifically how it's been affecting seniors, um, specifically, especially around the pandemic, um, and and the kind of the things that have come up over those over that time period.
0: We have a wonderful sweet soul whose number is four one one three three three. Introduce <laughs> yourself to everyone. <laughs> okay, I'm Adine. Uh,
3: no claim to fame. I moved to Vancouver. We moved to Vancouver just three years ago, uh, and I don't know very much about housing. It's not like a personal problem for me. I'm very interested in learning, and that's what I hope for today. I'd like to know more about uh, just what I hear on the news. More than more than just
4: what I hear on the news. Okay.
0: Okay, Emily.
4: Hi. So, um, my name is Emily. Um, um, i really uh, very inspired by our, our host, Charlotte. She had been doing this for how many episodes now? 31 or 51? Today is our 51st. Right, for 51st. Yeah, so, um, now today, uh, I think the subject a little bit uh, interesting. So, I say I was coming to to listen to it. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All right. Oh, about poetry. Um myself, I have massive art in English literature, but my thesis focused on 19th century romanticism. So romantic William words words, you know, semi-corage uh, the period time, the poetry. But I didn't I write only short, very short poems. It's few. Not like uh, Charlotte. Very talented. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you. You, Emily you. has written a book, and oh. uh, as we're talking about health, she practices and teaches uh, natural holistic health. Okay, Chris? Uh, hi,
2: Chris. I mean, I'm Chris. <laughs> I meant to say hi, Penny. <laughs> nice, to, nice to see you. Uh, I'm Chris, and I live in East Van and I belong to Quirky, the queer imaging and writing collective for elders, and uh, I continue working on writing. And there might, there could be some disturbance because I'm currently in uh, rehab at uh, Holy Family Hospital, so it's not always exactly quiet in this space. So I mute myself whenever I'm not talking. So just, just to be aware of when I do have. When I unmute, there could be some there could be some noise. That's it for today so Thank far.
0: <laughs> and I'm uh, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Charlotte, Sister C. Farrell. I'm a writer, poet, uh, and I have enjoyed with this wonderful group of people co-collaborating, co-hosting these different topics. And if you hear sounds, there are people working on top of my house, so it is uh, appropriate that today we're talking about housing, and as I said, no fooling, seniors are interested in affordable, healthy, sustainable housing, and our speakers, today Sarah Roddy is a uh, a person who's done a lot of work and is practicing in the area of sustainability she's worked with the city's hay neighbor program and she is um, her company is lighthouse uh, a project that does health and wellness teaching and helps people builders to become more sustainable in the ways that they're thinking and the ways that they are interacting with the public and she'll be telling you more and introducing herself further but that's my Instaburb. Uh, we also have, as a speaker, Anastasia Kutelenas. She is a writer and editor and a consultant. She has been involved in housing. She's worked with BC Housing. She's worked on the Tiny House Project, something that uh, has been floated about as a uh, possibility for seniors. So we will have uh, the two of them begin right after we launch our start with the poem,
1: The Poet, by Neil. Ah. Yes, and this is uh, the first poem, I think, that uh, I put it in a book uh, 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 because this is really, a, and there's short stories in my book, but there's, this is really about poetry. The Poet. The poet responds to a voice that reaches down to us from the other side. It emerges down through the noise and clatter of the mind and speaks to the poet. When the voice gets shared, we call that poetry. And then that give utterance to the gift, we call them poets. The voice that speaks through the poet transforms a simple wordsmith into a profound speaker of wisdom, one who puts pen to paper so that all may hear the insight and the wisdom that springs forth from the offerings of the voice. Words waft and weave in the air, emanating from the poet, expressed with the intent to share a recognition of our common humanity. The poet expounds the truth of our common problem of being half animal, full of wants and needs, as well as half spiritual, full of prayers and chants. In the beginning of time, the voice spoke the poem around the fire and then retold the story painted onto the walls of caves. That voice tells and retells of the epic journey of humanity, repeated from eons upon eons of past. The voice utters words speaking from the deepest part of our memory, beyond conscious thinking, but recognized by our collective memory. That poetic voice can be understood by every human being in the world without regard to race, color, ethnicity, gender, or religious belief. The poet speaks to everyone as we all share a common memory emerging from a distant past. It is the same voice that spoke to the poets who wrote the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and Ozymandias, King of Kings it is the voice that spoke to our forebears and we recognize a few of their names ovid homer rumi shelley tagore untold others in every language and every time Spo- poets speak to us of our common ancestry from when we became aware that life is a series is, is a series of experiences of tragedy and of joy. Poets share in a million ways the joys and tragedies that we all recognize, a tale of heartbreak and horror, of joy and ecstasy. Poets share the story of what it is to be human, a journey that is common to us all. Happy Poetry Month.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And while our two speakers are not poets, I know from their heart that they are doing work that looks to the humanity of all. So, what is going to happen is each are going to give a bit of an overview of their work and company, and then there might be an exchange between them. But also, you will be welcome to uh, ask questions, for make comments, etc. So. We're beginning with Sarah, and she has something that is a transition to the kind of work that Anastasia does.
5: Yeah, great. Uh, Thank you, Charlotte, for having me. Um, My name is Sarah. And as you mentioned previously, I work at an organization called Lighthouse. And uh, we do a bunch of things. But what I primarily do is uh, we work on buildings to make them more sustainable. And also, there's this interesting transition in the industry at the moment, um, the green building industry, where health and wellness is becoming a really big part of sustainability. It's that human piece within sustainability. um, And it's exciting to see this development unfold um, as I'm working on projects and where it's going in the future. So um, just to describe what that is a little bit more. What that typically looks like is we will be contacted by a developer or an architect, um, someone along those lines, and they'll have sustainability goals or they'll have health and wellness goals. And this can be for residential product projects of all sorts, affordable, not affordable, um, senior living, And so forth. It can be retail, interior design projects, industrial schools, so on and so forth. And usually there's a goal in mind. um, And what we often see happening is a building will get some sort of certification to show that they have achieved measurable, verifiable um, sustainability criteria for health and wellness. It's a very interesting time in the industry, especially I mean, with the pandemic, the shift toward health and wellness is becoming more and more prominent. And so what does that look like? Um, Now, there's something for your interest called the well-building standard. This is one that I try to promote as much as possible. It's kind of the health and wellness standard uh, for buildings. It came out in about 2015, I want to say, and globally, it's being recognized as best in class for health and wellness standards. Uh, it started in the office place, but now you can use it for um, residential projects and so forth. Uh, there's another one called FitWell, which is, it's similar, but in some ways it's not as intense as well. Um, it's interesting. It just actually came out with a senior housing um, guideline, And so that's one that I'm hoping to see get used. Um, I haven't seen a specific health and uh, senior housing health and wellness guideline developed before. So it's exciting to see that that's happening. Um, And then, of course, there are specific topics that um, I'd be happy to go into as the conversation develops more. Anastasia, you may not recognize me. My name changed recently, um, but I worked with you on the Tiny House project with Christina. Um, so just a, a shout out to that. And uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation about tiny houses too. Charlotte and I had a bit of a chat yesterday and uh, it's interesting as it relates to seniors and the potential. So with that, I'll let uh, Anastasia jump in.
6: Hi. Um- And hi, Sarah. Hi, Charlotte, everyone else. Um, Thank you for having me today. Um, My name is Anastasia Patelianos. I am the co-founder of the BC Tiny House Collective, and we formed that in July of 2016. Um, But my background is primarily in writing and editing and communications consulting, as well as... um, well, kind of, I fell into housing. So in 2014, I was the interim director of communications and marketing with Habitat in uh, Vancouver. And it was there just before I left that contract that I wanted to explore um, how we could look at building practices, especially conventional, conventional building practices and perhaps use the tiny form as, as kind of a model to explore how we could be a bit more innovative in some of our practices. And it didn't fly with the organization. So when I left, I took the idea with me and I created a think tank, a design tank, uh, whereby I brought in architects and designers and planners from all over the greater Vancouver area. We really wanted to explore what we could do with this form and whether it had any place in metro vancouver or bc more widely and uh you know as much as there was interest when i was meeting with municipalities i kept kind of falling on the fact that um not in my backyard was pretty predominant when it came to the form and so while the media has really played it up to be this uh this housing um, alternative that you can customize and it's great for um perhaps millennials that are kind of wanting to get off grid uh it really had no place in any of our municipalities um and so it was from there that i met samantha gambling who had a tiny house and and we started collaborating and formed the bc tiny house collective and started advocating to uh, legalize and legitimize this form beyond kind of seeing it through the lens of uh Um, I'm 20 years old and and I kind of want to live a little bit rogue and and do it my way. Um, And so we started doing a lot of research and and, and we kind of, our our focus was threefold communications or or engagement, really looking at uh, events and how we could connect with the community. Uh, We were looking at advocacy. um, So really getting out there in terms of political circles and letting the powers that be know that we were kind of working Um, to try to to get some more um, show time, I guess, on on, on the form itself. And lastly, research. And so what we did was we really connected um, with planners and uh, engineering departments and what have you, all the players that be to kind of see where this place could land. But through our research, we found that there was a survey done in the U.S. and the the main user of the tiny house was actually uh, women 50, single women who were 50 and older. So it's a bit of a fallacy to think that it's just for 20 year olds. It's actually for people who have disposable income, who had very high education, who were really products of a changing uh, society where we were seeing more people who were single, uh, perhaps divorced, or, or really wanting to live their life, their way, so to speak. And so um, we did a a lot of great things through the collective, but of course you always kind of hit a ceiling, and that's when we partnered with Lighthouse and and drafted up a report uh, with um, BC Housing, which was released last month, so March of 2021. Uh, There was a bit of a delay, of course, because of uh, COVID, Uh, but it really outlines the opportunities and challenges around these forms and and looks at how they can be used in kind of community settings. And they have been, especially in the States, used for veterans, seniors, people who have perhaps addiction issues, um, homeless populations. Uh, I would stress, though, the best use of it is as a laneway alternative. So really looking at these units as being temporary, units that can be pulled into someone's backyard you could create a permeable uh gravel kind of base in which you would hook it up not unlike you would an rv and you would reduce the cost of creating a a unit in the back of someone's backyard by $200,000 easy. And so like it definitely has its place in terms of affordability and in terms of uh, housing of not just seniors, but anyone who really wants to live perhaps more simply or, or, and these units can be designed with universal design in place. So that's considering, you know, what if you have a wheelchair, what if you, rather than having, you know, a unit, say, that would have a loft or what have you. But as of today, it is illegal to have a tiny house based on the construction practices that are involved, being uh, the railings, the egresses, so that's emergency exits, having a loft and a ladder and and what have you. Um, And if it's built on a flat deck uh, or a trailer, um, it's just not up to to standards when it comes to the BC building code to the Vancouver building bylaw or the national building code. So we, we find a lot of people that are building these wonderful little houses and got nowhere to put them unless you own the land. So this is the interesting thing with tiny houses. It's the first housing form that divorces it from land. So you can own it, but you don't have anywhere
5: to put it. Yeah, it, it seems like such a great opportunity um, often. And I guess maybe I, I'm thinking about this more in my life. I, I have a baby on the way and I I grew up with, you know, a lot of multi-generational connection. I have a very big family and having my grandparents right there, even living in our house for a number of years, um, aunts and uncles and this whole community was so vital to my growing up and that access to the wisdom that came with it. Um, Tiny House seems like a a great opportunity to help foster that community um, and keep that multi-generational connection. Um, I I mean, I'm personally thinking about this more these days, but I mean, there are examples of this in senior uh, developments that I've seen, at least. There are it, it's not always the case, but um, also even just within health and wellness, this, this desire for community is so vital um, for really all of us. Um, but in the senior perspective. Um, I'm
0: sorry, I was going to say, no, go it ahead. was released <laughs> last month. Is there any opportunity for public discussion or input around it?
6: Uh, BC Housing has discussed that they're potentially going to be doing a webinar in the summer to uh, speak about the findings more publicly, at which point anyone from the public can sign up for it. But if you do want to go to the website, what is it, bchousing.org, and if you go to their publications uh, section, you should be able to find it. I believe it's called uh, Tiny Homes, an Alternative to Conventional Housing. And in it, it has case studies that are from the US as well as Canada. And it includes also um, some research that was done by Sam Gambling or Samantha Gambling and Sherry Laliberte that were looking at, you know, health, livability, size, um, and, and whether that is a factor at all. Like, because we often there's a lot of discrimination around the sizing of homes. If you look at the historical data, like what was made sense, you know, in the 1950s where maybe you had 500 square feet and now all of a sudden we have McMansions, you know, all over the town. It just doesn't, our, our priorities have definitely shifted. I think we have, um, we're in a period still of affluence. And so I think a house is perhaps a very much a, a symbol of status and uh, there's a bit of a fight, I think, from people thinking that there is a correlation to tiny houses and RVs. And there's very much a stigma that we still have to this day about um, trailer parks. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting because what Sarah was speaking of, like how we're all kind of hungry for connection, especially since COVID and all that jazz, is that trailer parks actually have uh mm-hmm connection and community built into their design. You know, oftentimes you have, because they're so closely knit, or perhaps you have a shared amenity space, um, and yet we scoff at it a little bit as if it's beneath. And yet now we have uh, people who could perhaps afford to build their own unit and and they want the same thing, but it's somehow elevated.
3: How does BC Housing... um fit into this in terms of costs because they're, I mean, they're not they're not sort of uh on bc housing sort of level of of you know what what seniors can afford for example
6: well the the bc housing originally wanted to do this research to explore the use of tiny houses for emergency housing due to natural disaster So whether these units could be brought in, you know, say there is like, for instance, um, the municipality doesn't come to mind, uh, but if there's a flash flood or what have you. So I don't know that they were necessarily looking at a specific target group, um, but they are, they have like, as part of their research mandate is to do technical reports that kind of explore housing from all angles. So I think they were curious Um, To see how these units, especially because they're getting a lot of um, press these days, how they play into the kind of the greater housing affordability kind of question and whether they could have play some part in. I don't know that given like if we're looking at Vancouver, for instance, and we're looking at senior housing, tiny houses perhaps is not the best use because you need, I think what perhaps is one of the better uses, and they are small in size and basically the same, they should be considered tiny too, is the modular units that are stackable. Because then you can use like the best, you leverage land and all the economics and the building practices and what have you, and they can be movable and and what have you, but yeah. Hopefully that speaks to what you asked and a little
5: bit extra. Thank you.
0: Whose decision was it to make it that there's no codes, that it's not possible if a group of people wanted to buy them and place them somewhere?
6: I don't know that it's like that people intended to kind of, uh, how do you say? not adhere to codes i don't think that was it it's just the form itself and based on and perhaps I can speak more to this and based on the codes they just don't comply because cities are risk averse and they of course want you know everything engineering building structural to adhere to uh the code and so if you have a double to maximize the space because tiny houses are often only eight and a half or 10 feet wide, depending on, uh, you know, the permit or the certification that you get. If you're going through CSA, you're kind of limited in terms of space. So oftentimes they're using staircases and ladders or what have you, and just a ladder in a house at such a an angle doesn't comply with what the code says itself. So it's really kind of, you know, cart before the horse a little bit where you have to then explore how can this unit fit within the code or does the code need to be amended so that it can like meet the standards of this unit? Uh, Does a CSA have to create a new standard that's specific to tiny houses instead of it always kind of falling out under kind of, this gray area of being a mobile house or a park model or what have you because ideally you want tiny houses to be not just viewed as a temporary use you want it to be seen as a full-time living resident residence and because of that there's a lot of kind of language and massaging mind you the us has taken some steps they have an international residential code and in December of 2017, they created Appendix Q and that, uh, that looked at, you know, making tiny houses a little bit more uh, legitimizing some of the features within tiny houses, but it doesn't apply to mobile tiny houses. So now you have codes that are you have and, you know, I was invited to join a committee by the ASTM. So that's another building code that has global standards to create a, tiny, a mobile tiny house code, which is wonderful. But the thing is, if municipalities are saying no, who cares? If provinces are saying no, who cares? Do you know what I mean? You have a building code, but you have no precedence because no one wants these things in their neighborhoods. So the reality is you have to do twofold. You have to encourage codes to be made uh, that meet all the kind of standard needs of a municipality from the perspective of risk and safety. But you also have to be Creating, you know, um, advocacy and like lobbying basically at all the levels of government so that it happens at a provincial level that they say if housing affordability is a concern, allow people to put tiny houses mobile if you anchor it, if you skirt it, if you do X, Y and Z so that they can put it in their backyard or however cities deem to use them. Otherwise, you're going to go one municipality by another, and this is such a waste of time. There was a woman in the States in California who did something similar. She did it with accessory dwelling units or what we call lanery houses or coach houses or carriage houses, whatever. A unit, basically, that's in someone's backyard. Um, and she did it across the board. She went to She went to state legislation and got it all mandated, that effective immediately, all municipalities had to allow it that's how you affect change. You don't knock on every city door. This is a waste of time. So it's like, yeah, the code thing is tricky and the report really outlines that piece. Yeah. The,
5: the code, I, I can't speak to that. That's not something that I am comfortable talking about, but there is something you were mentioning about, I mean, just the very nature of tiny houses. They're unique because they're so customizable and, when I hear words like that, it reminds me of aging in place, which is a topic that comes up when, whenever I'm working on projects that have to do with um, senior living, families that grow out of the places that they live in. Um, I'm not sure if, if people here are familiar with the concept of aging in place. Uh, Charlotte, you had mentioned when we talked briefly uh that it was something that was on your radar as well i can certainly go into some more details about it it's it's a great idea that i think is applicable to this
2: topic
0: i have other people heard of aging in place are you kidding aging
2: in place has been talked about for years now <laughs> yes. and the problem with aging in place is there are not the supports there to allow people to age in place so Mm -hmm. while while residential care facilities are being filled up particularly because people are living living longer and so these days most most residential care facilities are are basically with the majority of people there are, are people with with dementia or and alzheimer's and so uh the rest of, the rest of us are going to have to age in place but the government and our Vancouver coastal health does not provide adequate supports and services to make that possible so <laughs> down with aging in place i think aging in place uh, as a okay. concept is good but aging in place in reality is is virtually em- Impossible unless you have enough money to hire people. Unless you have a family around you that can fill in all the gaps. Um, I mean, I'm 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 alone. I'm single. I have no no biological relatives living anywhere near here. I have lots of friends and lots of supports, but there's there's not there's not a systemic uh, way. You're talking about change, and you're talking about uh, making systemic changes and that certainly is something that we need here with respect to you're talking about housing but there's also the whole issue around around supports for aging and older adults
6: this is an issue that they found with a lot of the community tiny houses that they would be building in the states when it came to like homeless populations it's like sure you can have houses and you can put homeless people in there but you have to have support system in place in order for them to super to thrive that means maybe you have someone that helps with career development or mental health or addiction staff on site you can't just it's it's so much more complex than just simply creating you know houses for seniors it's about what are the needs of that population and whether that form can even uh, address or it, whether it's like best used, you know, in that particular case. So there's like so many things to consider.
3: I it's the first time. The first time I have heard the term "aging in place." I presume it means receiving assistance to be able to live in your own home as opposed to going into a residence. Is that the idea?
2: Yes, well, Ed, aging hey. in place. Aging in place is. Um, is is an approach that's being used in terms of older adults that uh, most of, most older adults would like to age and stay in their own homes in their own places, assuming that they have one. Uh, but the older one gets, the more supports one needs, and so aging in place is, a, as I say, is a great in theory, but in my experience it's not in practice because there are not adequate supports that uh, that are affordable. And that's, that's the issue. It's the affordability of being able to have the kind of support that one needs uh, in order to be able to age in place, particularly if you're an older woman living alone and uh, d- don't have that biological family around you and biological supports and you don't have a whole lot of money.
4: Well, the age
6: in place is also from a design perspective. So it's making sure that it's ensuring that the house itself is designed so that someone can live, you know, their life in the home. That means maybe you have to retrofit the bathroom. You'll have to change and have railings added. Perhaps if you, uh, at one point you're in a wheelchair, you may have to lower all your counters. So this means you need money. And this it can oftentimes mean like you're making a lot of shifts. Maybe you once lived on the second floor. Now your bedroom's on the bottom floor. Perhaps now you have to hire in staff to, to be with you full time. So it's like there is a cost involved. However, people are taking in consideration, say, for a tiny house in this consideration. Um, and let's say the unit is less than 500 square feet. So you don't have a lot of like floor room, but it's like, perhaps you have a ramp going up to the unit. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is on the main floor. You don't have anything that's hard to reach. So that means that from the the onset, you have to have a designer and architect that's well-versed in terms of your needs and incorporating all those from uh, the beginning. And of
5: course that comes with the price tag. It, now- it is something that I'm, that I have noticed on projects. So, I mean, these are new builds that I'm talking about that I'm typically involved in. So, you know, multifamily mid rise and so forth where it's not about the retrofit because it's a new building. These things are being designed into the space right off the bat with the understanding that these things are attractive to really all types of people. I mean, even myself, I, I, live in a home right now where actually a senior lived in here before and i mean this is just such a small example but the flooring is non-slip and i came from a rental before where the floor was if there's water on the floor you're going to go flying so little things like this that i mean there are many examples um anastasia you listed a few but like electrical outlets that are just raised higher off the ground right off the bat, and Mm -hmm. these are considerations that can be put into a building right off the bat, regardless of who's going to occupy it, but also in consideration of having
2: various abilities and ages
5: living in a building.
2: Yeah, this, I mean, I I was on the Seniors Advisory Committee for the City of Vancouver, and we spent years fighting with the City of Vancouver and the Building Code to make sure that, that the Building Code, in fact, did have those features in it, and so now the building code requires uh, requires um, switch light switches and um, uh, things like that 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 are uh, accessible, and also that things are convertible so that a kitchen sink for example may be fine as it is now but the plumbing has to be put in in such a way so that if someone needs to change it because they're now in a wheelchair like I am at the moment that in, that that it can be lowered without having to pay enormous amounts of money to the to to plumbers so you know a number of us spent many years working on that
3: i think that the um Provincial co-op association as well has been involved in that discussion in housing co-ops. You know, whether they are when they are being built as new buildings, that those options are are set up so that it's not going to cost a fortune um, for to to change things as as needed.
0: the, The couple of things that you've mentioned that is worth highlighting, and that is intergenerational. You know, our our show tomorrow is going to be heard also through CJSF, which is a college radio station. But often during COVID, people have had to talk more. And some issues that are intergenerational issues, I think uh, that there's a different template, a different atmosphere of people seeing that, well, we need to both go to council together to talk about some of these things. It's not just something that's for older people or it's not just something for millennials that really – Planning housing and seeing what types of plans are going in. People uh, who are interested in environmental issues. Sarah's mentioned some of the things, um, you know, wanted to talk about sustainability factors that younger people are interested in that also benefit young older people. I saw. Uh, a talk that was offered at BuildX, which was a conference for construction <laughs> builders, but they were talking about they have developed systems for classrooms that help learning retention, help with uh, reducing um, isolation. Tell me, Sarah, what are some of the other sustainability things that are coming into discussion?
5: Yeah, there's there's so many.
0: It's really awesome to see how
5: holistic sustainability has become for buildings. I mean, it touches on so many aspects just to name a couple. I mean, en- energy efficiency is a huge one that's typically top of mind uh, when people think of sustainable buildings. And it certainly reflects in, um, for instance, the Vancouver and uh, the BC Step Code, um, which is very energy efficiency focused, but it goes far beyond that. there's um, the energy consumption of a building, there's also the energy that it took to create the building. So embodied carbon is a big topic as well. Uh, Materials, you can go on and on about are they local? Do they have recycled content with them, within them? Is there transparency about how these materials were extracted, manufactured, transported to the site? Um, And same with the chemicals that are within the products. You can look at the the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds that off gas from things like paints and sealants and all these things. Um, but you can also go to a deeper level of other harmful chemicals that are hiding within them. Uh, there's water efficiency, indoor and out, so your landscaping and your toilets. You can look at the air quality. So these are just some of the many topics that you can get really specific on these things. Um, yeah, that although you were asking specifically about schools. Um, I actually spoke at BuildX in 2020. Um, I co-presented about schools and places of learning and ways that we can enhance learning through design. Uh, Something that I like to promote, it's called biophilic design. And I'm not sure if anyone here has heard of it, but it's this idea that as humans, we have an inherent love of nature and we spend a lot of time indoors, which has taken us away from nature. So how do we bring it back in and why would we want to do that? Actually, it turns out that bringing nature into spaces is important for restorative experiences. It's important important for concentration. It's important for creativity and inspiration And even just that connection to where we came from and that acknowledgement that we evolved with nature and we have these unique relationships and these things that we prefer. And how does that translate into design? So schools and places of learning are an excellent place to incorporate biophilic principles. But I mean, any building, any residential building, offices, institutional buildings, they all benefit from adding this layer of bringing nature back in. Um, there, I mean, there's air quality, of course, makes a big difference. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, what are some of the ways that
6: nature can be brought in?
5: I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, there's there's a lot of examples. There's um, one document, there, there's two kind of major frameworks on biophilic design. There's one that you can uh, learn about through the Living Building Challenge and they list out I want to say 90 or so different um, ways that you can incorporate nature into design. There's also something called the 14 patterns above, 14 patterns of biophilic design, uh, where it narrows it down a bit more. Um, So some obvious examples would be plants. Easy to do, just because it's easy doesn't mean it's not impactful. People get a lot of joy from looking at plants. Daylighting is, is an example. Natural ventilation. Our ability even just to see the day changing, the weather coming in. There's something about being able to open a window, which you often can't do in offices. And you can smell the rain before you see it. We, we have this unique multisensory um, interaction with nature. There's natural materials, of course, having woods and stone, reusing materials, things that have aged where you look at it and it's not just a freshly cut down piece of wood. You can see the age and the patina on it, um, flowing water throughout a building, whether it's just a water feature or if you want to get a little bit more fancy and um, recycle the water that lands on your site and through your building and having this wonderful gray water system of reusing water, um, introducing curves into spaces, which is a little bit more challenging since construction tends to be very linear. linear. Um, It's just more cost effective. Uh, But humans are very drawn to curves. Uh, Lots of really wonderful examples. But hopefully that painted a bit of a picture.
0: And seeing those things. It's not a hard sell. It's funny.
3: I just um, moved into a um, um, affordable um, seniors housing um, apartment um, just last month, and um, it's uh, I've you know have light for the first time in my life. I've actually got ten foot ceilings, and it's a very small apartment, but ten foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. But I said to the manager, I said, well, so who's going to change the light bulbs? And he hadn't really thought about that yet. That wasn't in their plan. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no possible <laughs> way I could change the light bulbs in here, you know, in a million years, right? So, I mean, there's things like that that mm. you know um, still need some work, I think, when it comes to.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of our, our points is, you know, as we speak up about things and people listen up, how can you act up? And I think intergenerationally, instead of seeing some things, if it's observed, these are good for schools. All those things that were mentioned for biophilic design for schools is also good for biophilic designs for family homes or senior homes, but getting people to even know this is happening you know, how can we get more people intergenerationally <laughs> involved in the knowledge and the discussions so that it's not just people saying this for seniors and this for school children, but seeing really we're one humanity and what benefits um, one will benefit the other. So it makes a stronger push potentially when going to city council or provincial meetings where there might be need to be code changes or whatever to actually get it implemented into what's being remodeled or what's being built.
5: It, it's great to even just get the word out there because it's an intuitive idea. Like I, I describe the need to be around nature, the restorative qualities of nature. We all know this. We've all known this since we were children that being outside, being in parks, views, sunsets—we all know that's deep inside but it's true, and so it's easy to recognize when. And, and having a word behind it helps: biophilic design, bringing nature into spaces. You, I mean, think about your your perhaps your favorite room in your house and what. What are some of the qualities of it? Is it the, the lighting and it has natural lighting? Is it, is it just the way that the breeze comes in? Is it the, the colors that have this natural tone to it? Uh, it? It's something that speaks to a lot of people.
6: It's an interesting question because I don't know really how you engage people intergenerationally about housing. Did I know a lot about housing when I was young? I don't think so. Did I have an understanding of how much it costs to like run and operate a home? No. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we have to have more conversations with our children about like kind of what it takes to actually maintain a house, you know, what's involved, uh, how is it structurally made? It'd be interesting for kids to even go on tours, you know, when that's possible again, so that they can be more engaged with like the built form and like what the opportunities are, because that to me is amazing. All those natural pieces that Sarah mentioned, because it's so important that a house be a home. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we all kind of have our different take on how that could be. But I do think it's really up to each individual, if you're passionate about this topic, that you you make yourself get heard. It's your responsibility. So whether you join um like one of the Participants mentioned before that she was on like a seniors committee. I think that's really important or like collecting all of your viewpoints and sharing it with the housing manager or taking it to the city council or really, I think that if we're housing seniors and we're not talking to seniors, I don't want to have the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm not a senior. I don't know what it's like. I well, my parents are in their seventies and I'm seeing that soon the house is going to change that's a different story, but I'm I living that experience. No, I'm, I'm a child of that experience. And so I think that we really have to be engaging with the people that are feeling these changes. And I am like impressed to be honest that in the last five, 10 years that we are even talking about sustainability in the way that we build. Whereas before it was just like quick fix. How do we get the most money? Do you know what I mean? Like now we're even seeing like multi kind of, uh, Uh, It's not just uh, townhouses and, you know, single family. We're getting a little bit more creative into, like, having multiple units on the site. But I think that this industry needs a major, major systemic change shakeup because it is just so stuck in kind of the medieval ages in some ways because it's so connected to capital. And so long as it is, it just kind of keeps – a lot of people just keep doing the same thing, but I am like hopeful that the, the pendulum is moving forward, that there is some, that there's constantly people who are innovating and, and, you know, LinkedIn, I I is the only social media platform I'm on. So I do see a lot of architects and designers that are promoting like some projects that are coming out of Europe that are just in Latin America and Asia that are just brilliant. So yeah i would say again that it's up to the individual to really kind of be engaged and whether that's teachers encouraging students to get involved parents and just like if you have um, a passion for for it yourself that you just kind of take the initiative and be heard and you know what's great about the pandemic now is that all the city council before that required that you were in person to have your voice may have to kind of change the way they operated before and now allow online commentary. Meaning you will have younger people able who maybe before were working nine to five to be involved in that discussion and that dialogue. Whereas before, if they were taking their kids to hockey practice, they weren't going to go to the city council meeting at 3pm.
0: Another thing, people are talking, it makes me think of the song Blessing in the Storm. But children are home and they're seeing some of the things that have to be done within the home. You know, they hear people talking about the bills or complaining mm-hmm. about the heat that they they know way more about the operation of a house than they knew when they were just going to school and being picked up and, you know, coming home and getting on the computer. Uh, also the example i the, the, the young 14-year-old in Sweden who organized so many people around climate change, it shows that, that kids can be mobilized around an issue when they see the consequences. So the the, the um, possibility for people within a community, there are, um, I think it's called next door. Really interesting things are happening in some of those community papers next door where people are talking about let's get together to support something that's happening in each span or let's get together to support something. So I think that that there is a new climate where if people know about a report like the one you did on tiny homes, or if they know that something's being discussed about biofield, that people can get together on Zoom or there's Clubhouse. There are all these different places now <laughs> where people can meet and talk. And then those of us, I say, you know, baby boomers, we can like uh, people that have been on the sidelines, uh, at a, taking a timeout in the basketball game. We have to lace up our tennis shoes and get back out there with the advocacy and fighting skills we have to bring um, more light to. To really say, no, you can't just have a code like that. What are the things that are needed to be done, and to push? But I think that people respect uh, what. People are talking a lot about the different movements that have occurred, civil rights movement, women's movement, gay rights movement, um, all of the different movements, so that there is an atmosphere, I think, available. So that's why we're having this as a first-time conversation. Another person that was involved in Vancouver on uh, the question of how to make the cities better is um, the – owner or director of Wallace world and Wallace world in five different countries have got these hub models on the there are a few places that have done that. There's a hub. People live in the building, but instead of everybody having a printer, there's a printing place. Uh, People live in a building and there's a place so that everybody doesn't have to have all this equipment in their rooms that, you know, use so much electricity. So it's, it's, there, I think it's just listening and having a raised consciousness that we will, when he's back from Sweden, he's going to come on and talk. But I think that just among ourselves, among the people that are interested, we could continue on and be in touch with Sarah, be in touch with Anastasia and see where are there places that we could lend our comments or lend our presence. And, And I think just participating in conversations, because so much of our previous life, (laughs) people were kind of more attached to their individual devices. But now we've had to be, you know, in communal discussions about many things. So I, as I said, this is just our first discussion around housing. We have some ideas that have been planted as each of us think of examples of ways that they might've been sharing in the past or when things are happening to your own building, you know, some of the things that we've, looked at within this building, what can we do as three people here to, you know, if there's a, the rent will go up if we all use our, our electricity all the time. So are there ways we can bring it down so that the owner of this house doesn't have to raise our rent? So I thank you very much for participating. We will, the story will continue. And uh, definitely, um, I hope that it has been a, a meaningful use of your time. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thanks Charlotte. So thank you at and Sarah for taking time out for <laughs> each of you for participating. And we, we have some, we used to call them rabble arousers. Now we will just say we have some very effective people with continuing to make noise. So uh, they might be in touch with you and just looking at, you know, what can we do? Because we all have got a force and energy. And the radio station as well will be asking people that question, what can you do? And so if there are places that you think of of um, email to send, reports to look at, um, these were things that we can share with other people so that we can work together to make a shift in housing and other things happening for us in the second most unaffordable city in the world.